you're either an ally or an adversary. So how do you avoid destruction? You surrender, you repent, and with fear and trembling, you transfer your allegiance from yourself to the Lord. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. You're listening to Doxology, a sermon series through seven essential psalms. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. We're going to actually start our time this morning not in Psalm 2, but in Acts chapter 4. So please turn with me uh, in your Bibles, though you are already at Psalm 2. Hold your place there and go with me to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to start around verse 23. Now, to set this up, I want you to picture a young church, not unlike uh, our young church plan here at Shoreline. I want you to picture uh, two of your leaders who have just seen God perform a miracle. There was a disabled man who was begging in the city, and uh, they saw it. The leaders prayed for him, and God miraculously healed him. And from that, they began to preach the gospel, and many of the people, almost the entire city, uh, hears the message of the gospel. Uh, and, and the leaders, or the, you could say the government officials, become very uh, to say the least, upset about um, this situation. And so those two leaders end up becoming arrested and they're held in night, uh, in jail overnight uh, and then the next day are brought before the government officials and as they're brought to kind of plead their case, they again boldly proclaim the gospel. Uh, the leaders, the government leaders, tell these church leaders, uh, threaten them basically to stop doing that uh, but they don't. They don't stop doing that. And so uh, they leave, and the first place they go is to their church community, their friends, and they begin to share what happened. And the church breaks into this time of thanksgiving and prayer. And as they're praying, the Holy Spirit empowers uh, the entire church to leave with a, a, a power of preaching God's word um, with continued boldness. Now, if you had to pick a psalm, that would best represent a hostile culture, a hostile community, a hostile like worldview against the people of God, the, the church of God that was meeting together and trusting in God's faithfulness, trusting in God's sovereignty uh, to look for his glory and not shrink back from her adversaries. I would surmise you would begin in Psalm chapter 2. In fact, I know you would because that's the psalm that the early church did go to, to quote in their prayer when almost the exact same scenario I just mentioned to you happened in Acts chapter 4. Look at Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. Your heading should say something like, the believers pray for boldness. It says, when they were released, Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quoted Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then verse 27, they continued praying, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And it says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Uh, The early church here was facing great opposition to the gospel message, the message that Jesus is Lord. And their response is to prayerfully quote Psalm chapter 2, to dig into the Psalms and to look at specifically the song that we're going to study together this morning. Psalm 2 is a psalm that asks a great question. Why would anyone dare to oppose a sovereign, almighty, holy God? And this psalm also shows us a great picture of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's what we would call a messianic psalm. So let's turn back now to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is quoted more than any other psalm in our New Testaments. Uh, It is, uh, including this reference in Acts, and it is a follow-up to the psalm we read last week, Psalm 1. I look at Psalm 2 and I see a sequel that in many ways uh, is similar to Psalm 1, and yet it develops the concepts that we learned last week in a a broader way, in a broader sense. Case in point, look at Psalm 1. You notice six verses in two big stanzas, whereas uh, Psalm 2 has four stanzas and 12 verses, so it's literally double. Psalm 2 ends where Psalm 1 starts, with a beatitude, with a blessing. Here in Psalm 2, we see the logical conclusion to those who began walking in the counsel of the ungodly in Psalm chapter 1. The logical conclusion is that those who sinfully reject God and scorn his counsel will face his awful wrath and judgment. Psalm 1 ends with a threat, whereas Psalm 2 begins with one. In Psalm 1, the righteous will meditate on God's law, but in Psalm 2, the wicked will meditate on how they can throw off God's law. In Psalm 1, we see a contrast between the righteous and the wicked, Uh, but here in Psalm 2, we see a contrast between the rebellion of all the wicked nations and their rulers and the rule of God's Messiah. So this psalm, Psalm 2, introduces us to the one who is known as the Lord's or or Jehovah's anointed, a.k.a. the Messiah, and that he's a son who receives God's blessing and yet simultaneously pronounces uh, retribution against God's enemies. And the early church found in this psalm, in these verses, a picture of the opposition they were facing from Herod, from Pontius Pilate. But that opposition wasn't merely against them as a community. It wasn't just against them as an organization. That opposition was against God himself. And so in our time together today, it's, it's my hope uh, that we see the sheer stupidity of resisting God's authority in our lives and that we would submit to today his rule and his reign and embrace, maybe for the first time, Jesus as our Messiah and as our King. So here's how we're going to outline, here's how we're going to break down the psalm. Remember, this is a song, it was meant to be sung, and if you look at it, there are those four stanzas. So when you sang this, you would sing, like when we sing here at church, four different verses. 
Uh, and so that's how we're going to break up our study today. And each of these stanzas has three verses in it, three lines in it. So on the screen, here's the outline. The first section, verses 1 through 3, is the folly of man's subversion. We're going to see how it's folly to subvert God's ways. Then we're going to see in verses 4 through 6, God's response to our folly, the fury of his wrath. Uh, we're going to see the favor of God's son in verses 7 through 9. And then, of course, at the end, we'll see in verses 10 through 12, the future of every servant. So that's where we're going today. Uh, if you take notes or outline, please follow along, or you can jump on the Bible app and follow the detailed notes there. Let's look at that first section, the folly of man's subversion. We know that even though there's no title uh, or a, a writer, an author, we know that the songwriter of Psalm 2 is David because the continuity of Scripture the text we just read in Acts, they said, who through the mouth of David, your servant, wrote Psalm 2. So we know that it's David. And David begins the psalm with a rhetorical question. It's the same question that you would ask a cute mouse when it wants to challenge a lion. You would say, why? Why on earth would you do this? Okay, so look at verse 1. He says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And then he says this, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and let us cast away their cords from us. Now, as we kick this off, the logical question is, why would anyone attempt something they knew they were doomed to fail? Why would they do that? This rhetorical question shows us the vanity of anyone seeking to cast off God's law, God's counsel, God's rule and reign. He says, the kings and the rulers seek to come against God, and thus the people in their jurisdiction are by proxy, by their uh, lack of wisdom, by their counsel, all the people in their jurisdiction are also led astray. Notice in verse 2, it says that the kings of the earth and the rulers they take counsel together. You want you to circle that word. That's the same word found in Psalm 1 that we learned last week. If you missed it, you got to go listen to the podcast. Uh, the word counsel uh, is the same word here. Uh, the idea is that the world is seeking to set itself up against the Lord. Uh, notice that what they say to one another in verse 3. They say, hey, let's just break the bonds. Let's take away the bondage. Let's cast off the cords that are binding us, that are holding us down. So it's interesting, their perception of God's rule and God's sovereignty and God's goodness is not goodness, but bondage. Uh, it's not governance, but bondage. I think it's interesting that the ultimate idol in the world today is the same today as it was when this was written. Uh, what is the ultimate idol in the world today? It's autonomy. It's independence. It's freedom from the control of God in our lives. Take you back to the garden. Think about what drove Adam and Eve uh, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, Satan began, the serpent began by saying, did God truly say, did God really say don't eat? That will always happen when someone goes into apostasy. It begins by questioning, did God really say, questioning the word of God. So, of course, he begins there, but notice in the um, book of Genesis that after he challenges the word of God, because after you do that, it's fair game, he begins to exploit this idea that, oh, did God really say, and, you know, God knows that you'll be like him. In other words, he begins to appeal to this desire for autonomy and lying as he's hissing to Adam and his wife that they can be free from the tyranny of God's sovereign control in their life. 
One commentator said this about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, this tree was not magical, but it seemed to offer to humans a way to be independent from their creator God, or at least promise that they might gain knowledge and insight equal to or in competition with God. This is the essence of sin. Wow. The essence of sin is to rage against, to plot in vain as we set ourselves against the Lord in this ultimate sinful desire to just be free from the constraints of his will and dominance in our lives. To look at all of culture, Ravi Zacharias says this, he says, an autonomous culture is when everyone does their own thing and there's no sense of absolutes. You see, the fall deceitfully promised us autonomy and independence and yet simultaneously cursed us with the most cruel of taskmasters, one that would exploit and abuse its power over us, that being sin. Now, when you think about people with authority issues, um, many times, you know, I want to zoom out from the picture that we have when I say, man, that guy's got authority issues. Don't just think of the little kid at Walmart who's kicking and screaming and mom's trying to get him under control and he's like taking his shorts off and his shirt off. Don't think of that. Don't think of the, the child in a juvenile center. I want us to zoom out a little bit more, a little bit bigger than that. To a certain extent, all of us have authority issues. Now, I'm not saying we're all the kid in Walmart taking our shirt off, but we all this morning have authority issues. If you're here and you're not born of Adam, then you may not have authority issues. But if you're born of Adam, chances are, yeah, you, sorry, it's federalism. We're born into sin. We've got this issue. So whenever you and I are pulled over by a state trooper and you see the lights in the mirror and you go, oh, come on, there's other criminals in this city. Why are you pulling me over? I'm a law-abiding citizen. And you kind of scoff at him. You roll the window. Well, you don't do this anymore. That was the 80s. You know, you push your button. He comes up and you go, yeah, got anything better to do, right? Hmm. Whenever that check engine light comes on and you just ignore it. Uh, whenever your Netflix account gets locked down due to a missed payment and you go, what? Uh, whenever, maybe I'm the only one that happens to. Uh, when you get on the scale and you see the number and you go, that's the wrong, that, this is inaccurate. I need to use a different scale, right? Anytime we do that, we're revealing the fact that we are uh, sinners. We have a fallen nature that wants to cast off authority and pursue our own independent wisdom. But see, in a greater way, all of humanity has together cast aside the law of God for lawlessness. There's been a worldwide mutiny against the Creator God who is holy, who's loving, who's just, who's all powerful. And this greatest of authority issues resides in every single human heart. There are some who today would say, well, I'm sitting here at church. I'm not, I don't have an authority issue. I'm good. I'm spiritual. I'm, I'm religious. Well, we're probably the worst because we still have these issues, and then we, we kind of whitewash it. We come over it. It, it kind of reminds me of Sheila. I read about Sheila this week. Sheila uh, is a woman who was interviewed for a paper, and she said, my religion's a little bit different. I believe in God, uh, but I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. What is her faith? She told the interviewer, my faith is actually called Sheilaism. It's just my own little voice. I, I follow my own little voice. This is mutiny against a holy God. And yet the psalmist calls this raging against God, one word, vanity. It's fruitless. It's not going to be successful. Note with me, verse 2, that God mentions that there's the Lord, Jehovah, and his anointed. 
Now, in Hebrew, the word for anointed here should be capitalized in your Bible. That's not a mistake. Uh, This is the word Messiah in the Hebrew. In the Greek, it's the word Christ. Prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed. But every time a king was coronated, uh, he would actually be anointed with oil by the kind of standing prophet at the time. And this is a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, a picture being set apart for God's purposes as God's representative. Every king was considered an anointed one. And most scholars, therefore, believe that Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. In other words, it was a psalm that would have been read at a king's coronation. And so the world, though the world would reject God and his chosen uh, anointed one and war against him, Uh, God's reaction is actually quite surprising. Let's look at the second section, starting in verse 4, the fury of God's wrath. Notice what God does. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Notice that God's response is laughter. Now, that sounds a little strange at first. But notice again, where is God in verse 4? Where is, what is he doing? What's God doing? He's seated. He's sitting. He's sitting in heaven. So theologically, we would use a Latin phrase, God is sui generis. What does that mean? It means God is in a class by himself. He's completely set apart and distinct from creation. God's not in heaven kind of pacing back and forth, you know, like watching you know, his adversaries, his enemies, oh man, they're coming against me. I'm not sure what to do. He's not in a celestial court stressed out at the moment. No, what is he doing? He's sitting and he's laughing. Nothing in creation can question or challenge or oppose God. That's folly. That's vanity from the very start. I didn't ask his permission, so I can't share this story, but our son Aiden, uh, when he was four years old, threatened to run away. And so I'm not going to share the story, but it, it was kind of a, a, a funny story, moms. If you've ever had your child threaten to run away, uh, you kind of laugh at that. It's kind of like, <laughs> good luck, sweetie. We'll see how far you get. And all of us moms, dads know the kid gets to the street corner, usually, if they're four. And then you know what happens next. They come running back for lunch, right? That's, that's going to happen. I need my Lunchable. I didn't pack any. So uh, attempting to oppose God invokes the same sort of of laughter that a mom would have at her four-year-old who threatens to run away from home. It's just, I, God holds them in derision. Or, or it's worse than that, though. Alan Redpath says this, the laughter of God in the Bible is a very solemn subject, for God only laughs in total derision. It, it's a laugh of omnipotence. It's a laugh of absolute authority. It's the laugh of total confidence and ability to destroy all totalitarian world power. Notice that God speaks in his wrath to his enemies as they're speaking, what they're going to do with their plans. God has a message for them. And his message is that he has already established his king on Zion, and that king will be unshakable. Zion, of course, is the headquarters, the royal seat of holiness, where God's prince resides. And so in a near fulfillment, that is a picture of Jerusalem. Uh, but we'll see that there's more to this in a moment. Uh, in Hebrews and throughout the New Testament, we see a picture of Zion. There's something more to it. But for now, I want to drive home the point that God has set his king, his anointed, his representative firmly in place. The word set in the Hebrew uh, is used when you would cast an image into a mold. And so no matter 
what the mold wants to do or the image wants to do. God is the one doing it. God's the one setting it. And, and so no matter how much the world may reject God's representative, God's Christ, as Spurgeon put it, I love this quote. Spurgeon said, God's anointed is appointed and he shall not be disappointed. <laughs> I like that. Throughout time, many have fallen into the trap of the beginning of Psalm 2 of falling into this folly of saying, let's unite together against Christianity, against the anointed, against God. Let's snuff out the name of Christ, the name of God from the world. But even today we see this uh, trying to rise up. You have the group known as the New Atheists, though there's nothing new about them. The Bible says way back in Psalm 14 that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So many have and many will come to defy God. But God gets the last laugh. Uh, actually, it's very fascinating. In the third century, Diocletian was the emperor, and he believed that he had snuffed out Christianity. And certainly, up until that point, the church had not seen the type of persecution that they had seen until the reign of Diocletian. It was, it was heavy. Uh, but he actually made himself a medal, like you would award someone nowadays in participation trophies, but he would award himself a medal, and the medal actually said this, the name of Christianity has been extinguished. He actually believed that he had done it. Here's what David Gusick says, though. Diocletian is dead and gone, a footnote on the pages of history. But the fame and glory of Jesus Christ is spread over all the earth. Or the phrase I like to say now, I read it this week, I'm going to start saying this all the time. Caesar is now just a salad, but Jesus is Lord. <laughs> I love that. God is seated. God's not intimidated. God laughs he speaks with wrath and fury against those who would assail him. Now, let's look at our third section, verses 7 through 9. And keep in mind, this is now uh, the anointed one who's speaking. There's the Lord Jehovah, his anointed one. He's set on Zion. And now the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, begins to speak. Look at verse 7, the favor of God's son. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, church, there's a lot to discuss from these verses. I mean, verse 7 alone is quoted six times in our New Testaments, mostly at the baptism of Jesus where the Father, remember where the Father said, um, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So there's a lot to unpack here. You remember at that baptism, um, this was God's decree, the Father's decree of affirmation that Jesus was his beloved son. You guys remember that? There was the Godhead present. There's the Father's voice. There's the Son being baptized by John, the Baptist or the baptizer, and then the Spirit descends like a dove. And so though these verses here in Psalm 2 may have... Okay, I'm just going to give you that little asterisk. They may have had a near fulfillment in King David as the one on the throne, the king. The early church recognized that this anointed one is none other than Jesus the Christ. So where did we go from this could be David and the king to now, no, this could be Jesus? Is this just the church sabotaging the Old Testament and trying to squeeze Jesus in where he doesn't fit? Mm, I don't think so. This is actually rooted in Jewish eschatology. Now let me take you on this little journey real quick. On the screen, 2 Samuel 7, 16 was a very prominent promise. 
This was a huge promise that God had given the house of Israel. He said, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now listen, when God makes a promise, whenever we make a promise, we're limited to our knowledge and our ability. So I could promise my kids that I'm going to take them school supply shopping tonight, but I'm limited in my ability if the stores are closed. You guys get what I'm saying? I'm limited in my knowledge and ability. God has all knowledge and all ability. So when he promises something, we can take it to the bank. It will come to pass. And he says to David, to Solomon, I will keep your house, your lineage, your kingdom. Okay, this throne will be established forever. So, of course, David's son Solomon assumes the throne. But then centuries later, when Zedekiah is king, when he's on the throne, something happened the Jews weren't expecting. Babylon comes, invades, and sacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, destroys the throne, carries away much of Israel captive to Babylon. And so what ends up happening is the Jews are going, wait a minute, I thought his kingdom, his throne would never fail. It would be established forever. And at that point in their eschatology, they started realizing, wait a minute, maybe we've been interpreting this wrong. Maybe there's a future ruler. Maybe there's a future Messiah, uh, one who would come and be anointed, who will be a son of God, whose kingdom, whose throne will never end. He'll be a descendant of David. And so to this day, the Jews still are looking ahead to that Messiah knowing that the rule and reign of David's throne will never end. And so these three verses in Psalm 2 are not merely David talking about himself. No, the New Testament writers overwhelmingly affirm that this is indeed referring to Jesus the Christ. Verse 7, when did verse 7 take place? When was this decree? It could be one of two possibilities. Uh, It was either from eternity, when Jesus was declared to be the Son of God and was begotten, Or when you see the word today in verse 7, the Lord said to me, you're my son, today I've begotten you, then that could, I think it may refer to the day when Jesus' identity as the Christ was manifested. Romans 1-4 says that that was when he was risen from the dead. Uh, He was known as the begotten. He was announced to the world, this is my begotten. He uh, was declared to be the son of God in power by raising being raised from the dead. But either way, either from eternity or on the day of resurrection, Jesus is eternally the begotten of the Father. Stephen Cole says this on the screen. He says, God's predetermined plan for dealing with man's rebellion involves the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, whom God sent into the world to pay the penalty for man's rebellion. He died according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God at the hands of godless men. But God raised him from the dead, and he ascended to heaven, where he is is now waiting to return with power. Now, I want to emphasize kind of three aspects about these three verses. So if you're taking note, I want you to jot these down. First of all, just spend a minute on this. Um, The son would be, first of all, begotten. Okay, that's kind of an obvious. We just read that. But I want to kind of camp out on this for a minute. Uh, There in the 4th century was a group of false teachings that came from a guy named Arius. Uh, He stated with this uh, heretical false idea that Jesus was neither eternal nor divine, but was created by God the Father before the world was made. So he wasn't begotten, he was created. Okay, the Arians are still around today in various camps, including the uh, Jehovah's Witness cult. 
Okay? But the Nicene Creed was formulated at the Council of Nicaea to answer the false idea, the false notions of Arianism. And so in the Nicene Creed, listen to this. Here's what the Nicene Creed says. It says, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And then it says this, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, and through him all things were made. So we need to know that Jesus was not created. It wasn't like he was born to Mary and that's when Jesus existed. Uh, he's the only begotten son of the, uh, of the Father. He is um, pre-incarnate. He pre-existed from eternity. And so the writer of Hebrews chapter 1 sets Jesus apart from the angels uh, and quotes Psalm 2-7 to prove Jesus' deity. He's the begotten of the Father. Secondly, though, I want you to jot this down about the Son. Verse 8 says that the Son would rule over the nations. Think of all the despots, all of the uh, emperors, all of the kings, all of those who have sought power. And verse 8 says that the Son will ask the Father and will receive for his inheritance all the nations of the earth. I think it's interesting. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, we read this. Listen to this. I don't have it on the screen. Listen. Then the seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven. And here's what the loud voices in heaven said. They said this. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Isn't that awesome? In Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. And so Jesus, the Son, has authority to rule over all uh, peoples, and he will rule over all. But thirdly, notice with me, uh, the last idea is that the Son would exercise his might over creation. Verse 9 says he'll break them with a rod of iron or dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this authority was granted to Jesus. And this concept of ruling with a rod of iron, uh, it's mentioned over and over and over throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, this might, right, this rod of iron and dashing them like pieces of pottery speaks of both the severity and the ease with which the sun will exert his might. I want to put one of the most powerful passages in Scripture on the screen. Just, just look at this picture of Jesus on the screen. Revelation 19. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And here it is. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If that doesn't invoke some aspect of, of awe and worship, 
then you don't have a pulse this morning. I'm sorry. This is describing Jesus, not the one that we think of when we watched the movie and there's this kind of smiling guy with long brown flowing hair and, and blue eyes and a British accent. He's probably Jim Caviezel and he's wearing sandals and you might be able to take him in an arm wrestling match. That's not the idea. This is a different Jesus than I'm used to seeing in Scripture. This is an intimidating Jesus. This guy's riding a war horse. He's wearing a, ro a robe with blood on it. He's got fire in his eyes. He's leading an army, and when he speaks, it cuts like a sword. And he has a title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, written in two places. One's on his robe, kind of walks in, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And then the other's tattooed on his thigh, and it's probably the last thing you see as he strikes you down. That's the last thing you see. You look up King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a different picture than how we often perceive Jesus. And yet the Son, according to Psalm 2, will exercise his might over creation like he's just dropping pottery on the ground. It's going to be effortless. And that brings us to our final section, verses 10 through 12. The future of every servant. With all of that information... What response makes the most sense this morning? What's the most logical response? Is it to resist and fight a God who is supremely sovereign and infinitely almighty? Or is it to keep this fearsome ruler on your good side? <laughs> Here's what verse 10 says. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Note with me that first he says, O kings, be wise, be wise. That's kind of the thing you call out to your 16-year-old who just got their license, and they think, you know what, I'm pretty sure I'm going to play chicken with a freight train. I'm pretty sure they're going to swerve first. I think I got this. That's when you go, hey, son, be wise, right, be wise, uh, what's the wisest thing that you can do when you stand before a God of holy fire? He says, serve that God with fear and rejoice with trembling. In other words, you wave the white flag of surrender. Uh, you're either an ally or an adversary. So how do you avoid destruction? You surrender, you repent, and with fear and trembling, you transfer your allegiance from yourself to the Lord. So he says, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. And then he says in verse 12, kiss the son. This kiss is an expression of homage and submission. It's when an inferior would kiss the ring or the feet of a dignitary. So to kiss the son means I'm accepting, I'm receiving, I'm honoring the one whom Jehovah has placed as his representative. I'm going to, I'm going to revere and honor his chosen one, his anointed, his Messiah. It means to submit to and to obey the Son. We're to kiss the Son. We're to receive Him. And then the psalm ends the way Psalm 1 begins. It ends with a beatitude of blessing. He says in verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. God is our ever-present help in time of trouble. He's our refuge and our strength. There's no refuge from God. There's only refuge in Him. So you guys remember last week what that word blessed means. Here it's used again. Remember, it means, oh, how happy, or contented, or fulfilled. And that only happens for those who make God their dwelling place. For those who reject God and who cast off his authority in their blind rage, they're going to actually perish under the mighty hand of his wrath. Listen, 
Verses 10 through 12 are not just for rulers and kings or presidents. They're for all of us. We're told to embrace the sun while there's still time. This psalm, Psalm 2, encourages us to sing to God and to ourselves the memorable melody of the madness of resisting God and the great blessing of revering him. And it's my prayer that we would not go the way of apostasy. I was saddened this week to hear about Joshua Harris, one of my old favorite authors, a pastor who used to be a pastor in Sovereign Grace Ministries, who's apostatized. He's left his wife, left his faith, and he's made that public. I'm, I'm departing from the gospel. I'm departing from God. That's, that's tragic. And rather than blasting him on social media, I read some of the comments, and it's actually very discouraging, disheartening to hear people affirming him. Oh, that's great. You've left religion behind. This is wonderful. Good job. Uh, my heart breaks. My heart weeps for him. I pray for him uh, that God, in his grace and kindness, uh, would still have a plan for uh, that young man. I want to apply this psalm in three uh, application points. So if you're taking note, I want you to jot these down. How can we apply this psalm to our lives? There's so much here we could talk about, but just to narrow this down for time's sake. First of all, in your witness, church, fear God, not man. Notice that he says, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Just like the first century church, we need to acknowledge that God's greater than, than his enemies. So we need to echo the prayer of Acts 4.29 that we started with, where it says, And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to us, your servants, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. We need to pray that. Listen, guys, did you know that the number one reason that Christ followers do not share their faith, the number one reason, is not because the gospel isn't true. Uh, it's not because uh, we don't know any unbelievers. It's not because the government has restricted us from sharing our faith at the threat of death. Did you know the number one reason that we don't share our faith is because we're afraid. We're afraid of what people will think of us. We're afraid of losing a friendship, of rejection, of persecution. And the scriptures remind us that the fear of man is a snare. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so in our witness, I just want to challenge us this morning not to fear God, or not to fear man. I said that wrong. Not to fear man, but to fear God. We need to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So our awe and reverence for the Lord uh, should motivate us to prayerfully preach the good news to those who need to hear it. So I want to encourage every one of us this week to pray for God's boldness to share the word of God, to share the gospel of God with someone who has not yet heard. It may be a family member, it may be a coworker, it may be a new client. Uh, one person said, if, if I've been given five minutes of an audience with a stranger, then that may be the Lord wants me to share my faith. So let's pray for that this week. What would happen if we were, be, were, were like willing to have boldness to fear God? Are there enemies of the cross of Christ? Yes. Are there those who oppose the gospel? Yes, they rage against it like the ocean in turmoil. Some will reject the message. Some will reject you. But does that mean we shrink back? Is it not worth it? Are we ashamed of the gospel? So in our witness, let's not fear man. Let's fear God. Secondly, in your walk, in your walk with the Lord, I want to challenge us this week to submit to and serve Jesus. He says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. All of us will serve someone. You can serve this world and reject the son, 
but the end result is destruction. Or you can reject the world and embrace the Son, and the result is eternal life and joy. As Christ followers, positionally, you and I are in Christ. But practically, even though we're in Christ, practically, how many decisions do we submit to Jesus' lordship? Do we, in other words, do we daily kiss the Son? On the daily, are we embracing Jesus as Lord? Are we receiving him? Are we trusting him? Are we surrendering our lives to his sovereign plan? I, I really like this prayer written by Timothy Keller. Here's what he says on this psalm. He says, Lord, your answer to the chaos and strife of the world is your son, Jesus Christ. He will eventually break brokenness, kill death, destroy destruction, and swallow every sorrow. Teach me how to take refuge in you, in your forgiveness through Jesus, in your wise will, and in my assured glorious future. Amen. So, church, in your walk, submit to, serve Jesus, kiss the Son. But finally, to apply this passage, in your worries, take shelter in Christ alone. He says in verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Listen, you can't find peace or safety anywhere in the world apart from Christ. True refuge is found only in Jesus. There was a couple a few years ago who wanted to find a place on the planet where it would afford them no war. They wanted to play, where's a place on the planet where there's no threat of war? And so they traveled and studied, studied and traveled. They found a place off the southern coast of South America, and they moved to the Falkland Islands one day before Britain invaded uh, that territory from Argentina. <laughs> See, there's no place on the planet where we can find true refuge, a true shalom, a true independence or autonomy, even though your flesh promises you that will happen. Some of us, we believe that's retirement. I'll finally get what I need if I only retire, if I only take that next step. Listen, in the trials that we face, We'll take refuge somewhere. Uh, it may be the bottle of pills. It may be the bottle of wine. It may be traveling. It may be working. People are seeking refuge and safety from the chaos of life. But the only rock we can hide in who is secure is Christ alone. We sing it a lot. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. So in your worries, I want to challenge you to rest in the hope that those who take refuge in him are blessed. They're happy, they're contented, they're fulfilled. Now I want to wrap this up and close um, with a pastor's challenge for us. I'll put it on the screen for you guys. I want us to consider the ways that we are dependent upon God. Here's what I mean by that. The world says true freedom is found in independence. But we know better, don't we? True freedom is found not in independence, but dependence. The way of Jesus is the complete antithesis of the cultural idol of autonomy that we all wrestle with. You look at Adam and Eve, and they're tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And yet the true and better Adam, uh, Jesus would not give in to the temptation of autonomy. Uh, he would not worship Satan and cut himself off from the Father. Uh, think of the dependence of Jesus upon his Father. He asserts in John, I can do nothing of myself. There wasn't a single autonomous decision that Jesus made apart from the Father's will. Think of him completely submitted to the Father to the point of death, even, even death on a cross. Jesus 
came from heaven to earth, not in a glorified state, but as a human made lower than the angels, begotten of the Father to two poor Jewish young people in a manger outside of Bethlehem, despised and rejected and esteemed not by his own. But the Father was well pleased with him, lowly and meek and gentle in his first coming, and yet when he comes again, he'll return treading the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. Think of Jesus in Gethsemane, wrestling in prayer with the implications of the cross, and yet he's still submitting himself to the Father, entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus was completely ruled and reigned by the leading of the Holy Spirit. If there were ever a man who was given authority that he could abuse, it was Jesus, and yet he was completely reliant upon the Father. So, beloved, consider the ways that you're dependent upon the Father. Are you the master of your own fate, the captain of your own soul? If you are, then one day you'll find yourself shipwrecked on the shoals of God's prescient judgment in due time. Or you can take refuge in him, rely on him for everything, even your next breath. We're going to close and invite the worship team forward, and uh, we're going to have people available for prayer in the back. And, And I would imagine in a group this size, some of you have not yet trusted Christ for your eternal salvation. You love your sin. You love your freedom, your independence. You don't want to part from it. And yet, you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ one day. And that judgment looms overhead. And I just want to encourage you. I want to beseech you. I want to challenge you uh, to receive Christ, to repent of your sin. And we'll have folks available to pray with you. I remember I was running from God. I thought I was so free. I thought life was so full. I knew nothing of the joy and the fullness of what it means to truly be alive until I gave my life to Christ. As we close it this morning, I want to just share with you the story of the Lighthouse of Alexandria. I've shared this story before, but go ahead and close your Bibles. The Lighthouse of Alexandria was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And at that time, it was the tallest man-made structure on the planet, size of the Statue of Liberty or Big Ben, 300 feet tall. And it was commissioned by Ptolemy I. And the purpose of this beacon of light was to um, bring in ships from the harbor safely uh, into Alexandria. But when the building was completed, the architect, Sostratus, chiseled his own name on the stone. But over it, uh, he didn't want it to be seen, so he covered it in gypsum. And on top of that gypsum, in gold letters, he wrote the king's name to honor the king. But his intention was that over the centuries, as he and the king eventually perished, when wave after wave would crash against that lighthouse, it would eventually rub off the gypsum and the king's name and his own name would be revealed. I wonder if many of us in like manner say, oh, I'm giving homage to the sun. I'm kissing the sun. I'm giving him honor. I'm giving him glory. I'm dependent. And yet, all the while, that's just a whitewash. Underneath, truly, our name is written. And so I just want to challenge us this morning to repent of our autonomy, our sinful independence, and to wholly lean upon Jesus for our justification, for our sanctification, and one day for our glorification. Amen? Let's stand together. I want to pray for you. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this text that we can together kiss the sun, we can repent of our sinful, 
vain folly of wanting to cast off what we call our cords and binds. Lord, your sovereign will is good. Your sovereignty in our life is a gift, not a curse. And we thank you that you're in control. We thank you that we can rest in you. And so, Lord, I pray for each person here today, maybe someone who doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. For those of us who do know you, that we would turn in continued dependence upon you for our every breath. We love you. We worship you. We trust you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.